Well, good morning, everyone. Um, like Dustin said, my name is Anthony Henderson. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I are members here at HCC, and I am so humbled and excited uh, to get to share from the Word with you this morning. Um, so if you would, uh, if you go ahead and, and open up your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 13. We're going we're gonna to go ahead and dive right in. Oh, yeah, kids. I mean, I don't, I don't do this a lot. So. So Psalm chapter 13, um, this morning before us, we have a very uh, serious, heavy, somber passage. Um, and so, so I just want to read that, um, give reverence to the text, and then unpack it. So Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Um, Heavenly Father, um, this morning, thank you for your word that you've promised won't come back to you void. I pray uh, just thankfulness that that you speak to us in scripture in words that we can understand um, that sound like our own prayers. So, Lord, this morning, um, just pray that you would humble us under it, um, give us the grace to receive it, and to be changed by it. It's in your name. Amen. So, you probably noticed while we were reading that, um, very heavy, not typically a text we would turn to um, in a worship service. The reason I chose this text is it's one that's, that's very near and dear to, to my heart, something that, that I've walked through um, personally, and something that I suspect that many of us in this room probably also walk around with, um, whether we like to be forward with it or not. You see, the reality uh, of being a human being is that a lot of us walk around with a certain predisposition to, to darkness, um, to gloom of the heart. Uh, there's, there's a multitude of factors that can contribute to this. For some, um, it's, it's circumstantial. There's something that you have walked in here with, something that you've walked out of, uh, family background, uh, something that's happened to you that has, for whatever reason, caused you to feel intense feelings of darkness, anguish of the soul, worry, anxiety, depression. For others, um, it, it could be chemical or physiological, right? Something in your brain doesn't fire or work the way that it should, um, or you are genetically predisposed to feel and be a more anxious, depressed person. Some days, it's just harder to get out of bed than other days. For others of us, um, we, we don't feel that way. We, we haven't walked through that. We, uh, we're we're predisposed to feel light and happy, um, to feel more joyful than dark. But 
you probably know, as you've seen your friends and neighbors, that that doesn't always last forever. That there, there could be coming a time when your, your joy and your light gets swept away and gets overshadowed by gloom and darkness. Pain and suffering are a reality in our sin-stained world that we all feel the sting of. Life is hard because of sin. The sin inside of you, the sin inside of me, the sin inside of everyone else around us. Bad things are happening constantly. I don't know if you've turned on the TV or or the news in 2022, but it seems like it's handcrafted um, to produce more and more anxiety and worry and depression. Maybe um, you're living with uh, suffering because of the consequence of a particular sin. Um, you've, you've done something, and, and now you're reaping the, the repercussions of that. Um, and that can cause suffering too. But in any of those cases, uh, the Bible is abundantly clear that God is intending to use that suffering, that anguish of your soul and your heart, so that you will cling to Him more closely and tightly than you have ever before. If you feel like you are deep down in the darkness this morning, my challenge to you and Psalm 13's challenge to you would be don't waste it. This is your chance to get a bigger view of God than you've ever imagined. And in ways that we can't even fathom, suffering, darkness, anguish of the soul is a deep mercy. So the purpose of of this morning's sermon would just be to, to observe Psalm 13, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired cry to God. Um, we're going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to try to draw some implications and applications for our life, make some connections with the rest of Scripture and the Gospel, and see if there's anything that we can remember while we wait in the darkness. So Psalm 13, so it is truly incredible that the Lord would, would choose to include words like this um, in His Scripture, in His revealed Word to us. Um, if you're not familiar with the Psalms, a lot of People would describe the Psalms as running the, the gamut, the whole spectrum of human emotions. They cover everything from the highest highs of joy to the, the deepest, darkest depths. There's many besides this Psalm that cover the depths. Psalm 42, Psalm 88. If you haven't read those, I would encourage you to go because you need to know that God is not unfamiliar with the pain that you're experiencing on the inside. We know um, from places like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, um, that all Scripture is inspired by God. I want to read that to you word for word instead of just saying it. So we know all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if we follow that logic, that means that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired David to pin these things, but but when we start to get down in the darkness, it it doesn't really have anything to say to us, and that's simply because the Bible really does put words to suffering, and you are not alone crying out in some vacuum in a unique place of darkness. You need to see that many have walked before you, as we'll see in a second, even your own Savior in places of darkness, and have found that sometimes the only comfort is to cry and scream out to God. So let's make some observations. So the first observation is that this darkness that David feels in Psalm 13 feels endless. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. David repeats four times the phrase, How long? How long, O Lord? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Does that sound like you? Have you ever been in a, in a state, a spiritual state, where it feels like it will never end? What about this? David felt that God had forgotten him. Verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? David's subjective experience had caused him to say, maybe God's not really there. Maybe God remembers everybody else, but he doesn't remember me. Have you been there? Also in verse 1, David believed God had hidden himself. How long will you hide your face from me? David's subjective darkness had taught him to say, God must have forgotten me. God must have turned his back on me. Maybe he doesn't want anything to do. I'm in this deep darkness all alone by myself forever. Verse 2, we see that David had turned inside looking for answers while all he felt was sorrow. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Has that been you? Have you been so deep down in the darkness and you're like, man, if I could just get around this thing, reason it out and think through it, you know, see logic, I would feel better. But the more you turn inward, it just gets darker and darker and deeper and deeper. David was desperate for answers. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. God, where are you? Please hear me. David felt like he was near death. Also in verse 3, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Has that been you this morning? Suicide is not something that we typically like to talk about, but it's a very real reality for a lot of people, especially in within the church. Have you thought, I don't know if this darkness will ever end. Maybe the only escape is death. David felt defeated, verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So deep down in the darkness, I'm shaken, I'm defeated. God, where are you? Do you hear me? Do you care? And then, the Holy Spirit inspires David to do three things, three observations slash applications for us. The first one, David directs his cries to God. Verse 1, verse 3. How long, O Lord? Verse 3, more personal. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. See, David knew that wailing into the void crying out to the universe wasn't, wasn't going to do anything. There's an idea that even subtly kind of slips into the church just a little bit that the universe, like God is, he's wound it up and, and he's, he's, he's watching over it, but you know, there's still kind of, he's, he's impersonal to my suffering and my pain. So maybe if I just kind of balance and, and skew my life the right way, he'll listen. And David doesn't even go there. David understands that Whatever suffering is happening in his life, whatever anguish in his soul, he's not separating that from the idea of a holy, sovereign God. He knows that his suffering and darkness is not beyond the scope and control of his heavenly Father. You see, our first reaction um, as, as Westerners when, when suffering and darkness enter into the pictures to, to chuck God out, either outright or kind of in the background of our minds, um, if we're suffering we think that it has to be an indication that either God is, is A, doesn't want anything to do with me anymore, 
that B, he wants me to be miserable, or C, he's not real, right? We kind of hear that argument a lot. Uh, famous atheists like Epicurus and Sam Harris um, tout that as a common argument, objection against Christianity, right? God is either evil, impotent, or imaginary if suffering is real. And I don't have time this morning, because um, I, I cannot, I make this joke every time, but I can't be the guy forever that went an hour and a half. I'm never going to live it down. So I don't have time to, to unpack such a complex subject like God's sovereignty, goodness, and the problem of evil. But that's not me skirting the question. I believe there are answers to that, and I would love to talk to you afterwards. But we have to stay within the, the, the confines of Psalm 13 this morning. But what we do see is that instead of throwing God out and rejecting him in suffering, Scripture invites us into close communication with God in our suffering. It doesn't have to push God out. The two things are not mutually exclusive. It's either suffering or God. Those two things can coincide and draw us in closer to him. Um, Sean McDowell, he's a professor at Biola University, he was in a a podcast interview um, with a guy named John Steingard. John Steingard um, is former lead singer of a Christian band called Hawk Nelson. Steingard had begun to deconstruct his faith, um, even to this day, would say he's, he's walked away. Um, and one of the reasons that he decided to walk away, he points out in the interview, is he said that he, he went on a trip to Uganda. And on this trip to Uganda, he had seen so much suffering that he could not reconcile suffering with a God who promises to answer even our smallest of prayers. He, he just couldn't, he couldn't get around that. Why would God allow the Ugandans to suffer like that? Well, Sean McDowell countered that in a, a study done at the time by CBS News, um, this was around 2017, so these numbers might be a little different, but 87% of Ugandans were identifying as Christian, and 11% were identifying as Muslim. So the conclusion that McDowell drew to counter Steingart's point was that whatever's happening in suffering for the Ugandan people, for people all over the world, it's not causing them to to draw away from God. It's causing them to go towards God. You see, westernized um, Christianity, westernized life kind of affords us this ivory tower kind of ability where we suffer, but we're still insulated enough from the suffering that we, we have the ability to throw out theoreticals like that uh, about God's goodness and suffering. But for the rest of the world where suffering is a very real present reality, suffering is not having the effect of, I don't need God anymore. It's something is broken and God is the only thing that I need. He is the only one perfect and holy enough to fix this. And so David here doesn't question the lordship of God and his anguish. It's God's lordship that David longs for. Right? The lordship and sovereignty of God is not something that we should reject in our suffering. It's something that we should embrace, that we should chase after, want to see, to understand. David longs for the answer of his heavenly father, the creator God, the sustainer, the almighty, to know that he is there, to know that he has gone away. You see, to the, to the degree that David suffered, he knows that's the degree of savior that I need. And David, as, as a Jewish man, would have had a very robust knowledge of who this God was. He would have been familiar with passages like Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. David would have also known God on a personal, intimate level. 2 Samuel 7, we don't have time to go there this morning, but God had made a personal covenant with David that his line would never end, that someone from his line would always be on the throne of Israel. So David, in his time of dire need, he's on the edge, he's slipping away, he's drowning in the darkness, and he directs his cry, not to some far-off deity that he hopes might like, catch, a, catch a whisper of his prayer, not to some old watchmaker who'd wound the universe up, but to a God that he knew personally. That's why theology is so important. Theology is not just a big word that people go to school to study. Theology is the knowledge of God. When suffering comes... You have to know who God is. And now, we as believers have an even more robust picture than David had. For all the scriptures that David had, even this personal covenant that God had made with him, we as believers today have an even more robust picture of who God is in the person and revealed work of Christ. You see, we know that God is not some far-off deity who's alien to us or to our cries of pain. We know from the gospel story that in Christ, God put on human skin, human flesh, human bones, human blood, human tiredness, human thirstiness, human weariness, stepped down into this messy, suffering, sin-soaked story that we call human existence. And so if you're hesitant to cry out to God this morning because you think, he doesn't know anything about me. You could not be farther from the truth. You need to see that God is very familiar with the human experience of suffering. That he knows what you feel. And he suffered far more than even your deepest, darkest day. And he did it for you. Some passages to highlight that. Isaiah 53.3. This is Isaiah prophesying about the Christ. He, that's Christ, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, your Savior called a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. John eleven thirty five, shortest verse in the whole Bible. This is Jesus finding out his friend Lazarus had died, knowing that he was going to bring him back from the dead. Jesus does this, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Your Savior wept, not just cried, but wept, sobbed over the reality of death and suffering. Matthew 26, 37 through 39, this is Jesus in the garden before he goes to the cross. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Luke twenty two forty four, also before the garden, or before the cross. And being in agony, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know about you, I've been anxious, I've been worried, I've been depressed, but I've never sweat drops of blood because I've been that anxious, but your Savior has. Matthew 27, 46, this is Jesus on the cross. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if you think that you've gone to the brink of the the, the darkest point in your soul where there's no coming back from, you've been pushed beyond the limits of, of human mental capacity, and you have nowhere else left to turn, you have Christ. He knows suffering and pain and anguish and darkness of the soul. He knows literally what it means to be cut off from God. And he was perfectly obedient. I've seen so many of my friends turn away from God because they see suffering and pain and anxiety and depression and despair as unfair and as a clear indicator to them that God doesn't exist. And it's a huge question, I'll grant you that. A good God and, and suffering. If God is real, why do I feel this way? I, I don't have any clear-cut answer for you other than the fact that this world is broken and we are broken. But we, we have something better than some clear-cut answer. We have a God who identifies with us, who gives us solidarity, who is not foreign to our pain. I don't know about you, but I hate it more than anything when people say, I know exactly what you're going through, because nine times out of ten, they have absolutely no idea what you are going through. They don't know the hell that your soul feels like it's in. But your Savior knows exactly what that feels like, and then an infinite times more, because he went through it himself on his way to rescue you. So now you can run to him. You don't have to suffer in the darkness alone. You can throw yourself on him. The one who perfectly endured suffering, resisted sin so that you will never be alone in it again. So if in that darkness, that despair, you're tempted to abandon God, to throw in the towel, to walk away and to say, I'm done with you. I'm done. So was Jesus. But here's the difference between you and him. And I don't want you to see this as like, oh, well, Jesus did it. So I got to pull myself up and do it, too. No, Jesus isn't your example. He's your savior. Here's the difference. Jesus didn't throw in the towel. He pursued, he pressed on, and now, because of that, he is your faithful high priest in the heavens who you can run to. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Charles Spurgeon says this, One thing I would say to one who really has a wounded heart, remember Christ's sympathy with you. O thou who art tossed with tempest and not comforted, thy Lord's vessel is in the storm with thee. There is not a pain that rends the believer's heart, but he, Christ, has felt it first. He drinks out of the cup with you. Is it very bitter? He has had a cupful of it for every drop that you taste. This ought to comfort you. I know of no better remedy for the heart's trouble in a Christian than to feel my master himself takes no better portion than that which he gives to me. So David, praying, crying out to a personal God. Second thing David does, he trusts in God's character. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The text begins to change here. Phrase, but. So David determines himself 
instead of listening to the counsel of his own heart, the subjective voices outside of him, inside of him that are saying, God's forgotten you, God's not there, God doesn't care. David decides, he makes a decision that he's going to trust in what he knows is true, is fixed. God's steadfast love and God's salvation. In a nutshell, God's character. So just like we said a minute ago, as a Jew, David would have been familiar with God's character. He knew the story of how God miraculously rescued the Jewish people from bondage in Egypt. He knew how God had provided for them every step of the way in the wilderness. He knew of the covenant where God promised to be God's intimate covenant-keeping God. He had also seen firsthand in his own life. God had protected David in the wilderness from animals while he was herding sheep. God had given the, Goliath, uh, the giant Goliath over to David when David had nothing to fight with besides a sling and a rock. God had protected David countless times from Saul when he wanted to kill him, when he was hunting him. God had made, like we said a second ago, that covenant with David, that David's line would never end. So David began to counter his current subjective darkness with the objective reality of who God was. Instead of giving the darkness any more ground, he was going to preach to himself. Jeremiah, um, well, we think it's Jeremiah. It lines up with Jeremiah. Um, The author of Lamentations echoes this trust in God's character. Lamentations chapter 3. Context, Israel had been laid to absolute waste by the Babylonians because of Israel's own continued rebellion against God. There was death everywhere. The city was under siege. And we get to Lamentations 3, and the author is weeping and acknowledging the fact that this particular suffering is, is just and deserved because Israel did not stop rebelling. But despite the circumstances, the author knows God's character. Look at Lamentations 3, verse 21 through 24. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Verse 31 and 33 of the same chapter. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief in the sovereignty of God, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. So the author of Lamentations and David both share this understanding of God's character. That whatever the reason for the suffering, whatever the reason that you're, you're, the thing that you're walking through, we can be assured God's motives are absolutely pure. That his steadfast love and mercy for you will never end that he is faithful, that he will not cast you off forever, that he will show you compassion, and that the suffering he is using right now in your life is not a personal attack. And for believers, we have to know this. We have to keep this in front of us. God's not playing with us in our suffering. He's not a divine sadist who just delights in in holding you up and, and torturing you. If we believe the inspired word of Scripture to be true, we know God is a God full of love, mercy, and compassion. So you may be walking through something dark right now, and we don't, we don't know the reason. I can't tell you the reason. 
Only God knows the reason. But you don't need to know that reason. You just need to bank on God's character. So David, author of Lamentations, in the darkness, drowning, banking their hope, directing their cry to a God they know, trusting his character. But they didn't have the whole picture either. We have a more robust picture than even David and Jeremiah had. We have the cross and the empty tomb. You see, it's not enough for me to stand up here and tell you God loves you and wants to be your God in suffering. If somebody tells you that they love you and they don't ever do anything to show you, then you're certain that they probably don't love you. You need to see it for yourself. And the clearest place that you can see that, the most precious objective reality in the whole entire universe is the cross and the empty tomb, the cross and the resurrection. That's where Paul goes in Romans 8. 31. He's talking about God the Father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's Paul's logic. If God the Father was willing to put Jesus, God the Son, on the cross instead of you, then what in the world do you have to be afraid of? Do you think that a God that would go to that length to secure you and rescue you is going to leave you when you are deep down in the darkness? Absolutely not. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? See, the, the gospel is, is no help if it's just a set of, of recommendations. I don't have any advice to give you this morning of how to overcome whatever darkness it is that you're in. The gospel is a declaration. It's not a set of, of religious platitudes. It's the objective truth. The cross is the clearest display of God's steadfast love and salvation. So if you're deep, deep in that anguish, for whatever reason, if you're suffering the consequence of some sin and you think, man, I'm never going to be able to shake this ever. Or if you're like, I haven't experienced this yet, but I want to be prepared because I know it could come. Then turn to Christ and remember the cross and the resurrection. Remember how it was Christ who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he took God's full wrath for you so you would never have to be cut off. See, that's the illusion that often happens in depression and anxiety. You think the worst thing possible is going to happen. But because of the gospel, it's not. Because on the cross, you can see God's character on full display. His steadfast love for you, meeting his perfect righteous judgment and wrath against sin. God not counting your sins against you ever because of Christ's finished work. And now, not even the the darkness, the depression, the anxiety, the fear, those things don't get the final word, right? Because the worst thing, those things are telling you, man, the worst thing that could happen isn't ever going to happen. You are never going to be cut off. If you want to know what does God think of me in my suffering, has God forgotten me, where is he? Look to the cross, because that's where he is. That's what he thinks of you. If you think that he'll leave you now, because your soul is in darkness or you're scared and lonely, forget it. You will never be separated from God. 
Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says this after thinking through that logic. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a scene towards the end of um, Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, where Sam and Frodo, they're journeying all across Middle-earth to destroy the ring, to set Middle-earth free, to, to get rid of the darkness. They've been journeying for so long, the only place they can throw it in is Mount Doom, the fire. Its corruption and evil has slowly, slowly been weighing on Frodo, dragging him down. And, and at this point in the movie, or the book, sorry, I know it's a book first. And at this point, he's, he's, he's barely crawling in. Sam's got him in his arms. Half alive, Sam looks at him and says, Do you remember the Shire? The Shire is this beautiful, idyllic countryside where, where Frodo and Sam are from. It's a huge juxtaposition to the burning mountain of fire and darkness where they are. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon. The orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket. And they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower field and eating of the first strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Frodo replies, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food or the sound of water or the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. You see, Sam could remember what Frodo couldn't. Sam could remember that despite the literal suffering raining down on them in that moment, that the beauty of their home was still there and still secure. It hadn't gone anywhere. They were just in the darkness at the moment. You may be in the deepest, darkest pit right now and see no light, but the light is still there. No matter how deep and terrible your pain becomes, you can cling to Christ and his cross where your sin was paid for and your relationship with your heavenly father was secured forever and where a future day is promised for you where you won't have to wrestle with those things anymore. Um, Keenan Fitzgerald, I don't know if he's here this morning, um, at Huntington Kids Camp uh, a couple weeks ago, shared this passage with the kids, and he asked them, imagine a world where there's no more suffering and brokenness, pain and darkness. What would that be like? This is the passage. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is uh, Apostle John, well familiar with suffering. History would tell us he was boiled alive and banished to the island of Patmos when he penned this well acquainted with suffering. This is the vision that John sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So David, in the darkness, directing his cry to a God that he knows, trusting in God's character, makes this final resolution. Uh, verse 6, David resolves to worship. Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord, 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. So when, when David steps back from his suffering and his darkness, he observes God's character and who God is, the conclusion he comes to is, I can worship right now because of who God is and how he has treated me. Um, a lot of times when I was growing up, people would, when I was being ungrateful or down, um, someone would, would tell me to count my blessings, and that would just it would irk me so bad. I'd be like, no, I don't want to count my blessings right now. But that is one of the most beautiful things that you can do, right? When you, when you look back on your life and you see the steady hand of God's provision, you have reason to worship. And now because of the gospel, we have an, an, an even fuller reason to worship. David says he's dealt bountifully with me. You see, in the gospel... God's not just been kind or generous and just forgiven your sin. I think that's where, that's where I stop a lot of times is God's forgiven my sin, but he still is annoyed with me or he's still forgotten me or he's, he's still not there. But the gospel tells us that you're not just a forgiven sinner. It's not that God just forgave your sins and, and rescued you from hell, but he's adopted you as a child. He has provided in abundance. You were God's worst enemy. And he has said, because of what Christ has done, you can be a son or a daughter. So you have ample reason to worship. And I'm not, I'm not talking about some fake it till you make it, put on a happy face kind of worship. But you can worship deep down in your soul when you remember the gospel. And maybe um, you're here and, and what I said still doesn't help. And you, you can't even figure out how to put your words in Christ. You don't even have the strength that David had to, to pin something or to pray something. God still hears your wordless cries. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Likewise, the Spirit living inside believers helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of God. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this morning, as you stumble, and as you crawl, and as you cry, and as you weep, and life is hard, and you feel overwhelmed, and you feel defeated, and you keep asking yourself, where is God? Remember that in your suffering, He is right there. And you now have an opportunity to cling to the one who knows exactly what you feel. And has promised that he will never walk away from you. Uh, as the band comes back up, um, close with, with one more passage of scripture. Uh, when the Apostle Paul um, and his, his traveling companions were crushed to the point of despair of life itself, Paul realized something. Paul realized that the suffering was meant to get his eyes off of himself and onto his only hope. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We don't know what was happening to Paul in Asia. Some kind of affliction. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again.
So whatever darkness you walked in here with today, or will walk out with, turn to the one who hears you. If you don't know Jesus is your Savior, this is the first time that you're hearing this, um, find anybody that was up here, some, the person who invited you. We would love to talk to you um, so that you can have that peace and hope to know that Christ is always with you. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, for your promise of solidarity to be with us, uh, even in our darkness. God, thank you for suffering on our behalf to bring us to yourself, Lord. I pray this morning that uh, your word would fill our hearts and minds and that anyone in this room who does not know you would come to know you and have the intimate relationship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.